Good morning. Woo! Lights are bright up here. It's my first, no, second, second time up here. Um, like Dottie said, my name is Matt Bacon. I am Carl and Karen's nephew. Please don't hold that against them. They're great people. Um, reserve all judgment until, uh, until later. Um, I'm excited to be here, excited to be back. My wife and I were privileged enough to live out here on the coast for a couple of years while I worked for the Arroyo Grande Police Department. And uh, like Dottie said, she was the youth director here. So I got to spend some time with, um, with, with some of the youth, some of the faces I, I still recognize a little bit. Um, I still recognize some people from here. Uh, I have a, as you can see, I have two children. I have a son who's seven, eight. Oh my goodness, he's gonna be eight soon. Oh my goodness. I have a daughter who is four going on 30. She's a little ball of sass and uh, she keeps me on my toes constantly. Um, electronics are a funny thing, right? I try to keep my kids from being on the iPad too much, so I, I've been trying to, to teach my son to play golf. It's something I feel like we'll be able to do together. I found out golf is a great sport. I'm terrible at it, but it's something that you can do forever. Um, I also found out that even when I'm too old to actually be able to swing a club, you can put one behind the ball and you can put blanks in it and when you press a button, it fires, and this plunger shoots the ball like 200 yards. Like, I need that now so I can hit it straight. But it'll combine two of my favorite things, you know, shooting things and golf. But I've been trying to get my son involved, and so I took him out to the golf course the other day, and, and we've been practicing at home and stuff, so I took him out there for the first time, and, or second time, and he, he's lining up, and he goes to hit this shot, and I, it was like, I don't know how he managed to get the ball to do what it did. I know it's possible because I did it once, but I was standing kind of off to the right and a little behind him and the ball like almost hit me in the face. Like it like bounced off the cart. We laughed. Um, I was a little bit scared, but you know, just I'm, I'm trying to teach my son. I'm trying to teach him how to, how to do life, right? How to, how to grow up and, and in these certain stages of his life, what it is that he needs to do, right? And I'm doing the same thing with my daughter because God love her. She is either going to do amazing things for Jesus or she is going to run her own mafia. That is the type of girl she is. It scares me a little bit how intense she can be. But we're trusting and believing that she's going to do amazing things for God and not run a mafia. Um, so I'm, I'm a history guy. I really love history. Um, and one of my, one of my, my favorite things to do is, is that I like to study battles and I like to study wars and I like to study conflicts that were fought to preserve freedom and to, uh, you know, just fi people fighting for liberty. How many of you have ever seen the movie We Were Soldiers? Couple of us. Okay. So I, I love that movie because as far as Hollywood movies go, this movie is pretty factual. The lieutenant colonel who was portrayed by Mel Gibson was still alive at this point during the filming of the movie, and he actually sat in and consulted on a large part of it. There were things that he asked them to cut out. And yes, there's still some Hollywood glamorization to this thing, but it's pretty accurate. Um, and it's pretty, it's, it's pretty close to, to how he said things happened. And as I was, I was watching this movie uh, about a week and a half ago, and there were some things that really stuck out to me in this movie. There were some scenes that really caught my attention. And there's one scene in particular where they know they're being deployed to, to Vietnam, and they know they're going to be a part of this conflict. And so you see this, this character sitting at, at, at a table in the middle of the night, and he's poring over books. 
He's pouring over history of the region. He's pouring over information that he's gotten about different battles that have already been fought, and he's just trying to learn, and he's soaking up as much as he possibly can. Something else that stuck out to me about this particular character is when they realized, when they've been told, hey, we're going to be using helicopters to jump in and out of battle. We've got to train this. We've got to figure out how we're going to make this work. And so he's meeting with all of his platoon leaders, and, and he and the sergeant major come walking in, and he begins to explain his philosophy, the leadership style that he is going to use and that he is encouraging his platoon leaders to use, which is, if you are a platoon leader, you are the first off, and the, you are the first off the helicopter, you'd be the last back on. Because if you're going to lead your men, if you're going to inspire them, you have to be on the ground and lead by example. As he said, you have to be there where the metal meets the meat. And during this other part of, 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 of this other scene of training, the, the helicopters are flying in and they're landing and these guys are jumping off both sides and you can hear the pilot and he's counting in his head how long he has before he's going to take off again. And it's really smooth, right? It looks really precision, looks really good. And one of the lieutenants says to him, hey, it looks pretty good, huh? And he says, yeah, the only problem is there's nothing wrong except that there's nothing wrong. So as the next helicopter comes in, he runs up and he slaps the platoon leader in the chest and he goes, you're dead. What do you do? And the first sergeant hesitates. He slaps him in the chest and he goes, you're dead. What do you do? And somebody finally yells, get off the chopper. Now the whole time the pilot is still counting. He knows when he has to leave. And as he begins to take off, these guys are pouring out of this helicopter and they're falling and it looks terrible. It is not precision. It looks bad. And he gathers up his men and he looks at them and he says, you need to teach your job to the man below you in rank and you need to learn the job of the man above you because things happen. He says, we're going to be landing under fire and men are going to die. And that, that got me thinking about, oddly enough, how do we disciple people in the church, right? How, like for me, as the youth pastor, if something were to happen to me, does my ministry carry on? Have I put in place the pieces that I need to carry on my ministry and for young people to still be reached out to if I'm not there? And as I was thinking about that and as I was thinking about all of these, these different things, I began to think about David. David is one of my very favorite characters in the Bible because the man was incredibly flawed but he's still considered to be a man after God's own heart. And that gives me great comfort for myself because I look at myself and go, wow, you're in rough shape there, pal. And, and I started thinking about David. And then as I started thinking about David and this, this idea of discipleship, I began to think about, about these guys that are called David's mighty men of valor. And we read about these guys in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, verses 8 through 12. And I, this isn't going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read this to you guys. But it says this, starting in verse 8 of 2 Samuel, chapter 23. It says, These are the names of David's mightiest warriors. The first was Jehoshabim the Hakmonite, who was the leader of the three. And some translations will say the uh, leader of the three captains. The three of mightiest warriors among David's men. He once used his spear to kill 800 enemy warriors in a single battle. Next in rank among the three was Eleazar, son of Dodai. Once Eleazar and David stood together against the Philistines when the entire army had fled. He killed Philistines until his hand was stuck to his sword and the Lord gave him a great victory that day. 
The rest of the army did not return until it was time to collect the plunder. Some really good friends right there. Verse 11, next in rank was Shammah, the son of Agi. One time, the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelites in a field full of lentils. The Israelite army fled, but Shammah held his ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for this example of David and for of these mighty men, Lord, and how we can learn some really helpful things about discipleship from this. As we dive into your word today, Father, as we study together, we pray that your word would go forth. We pray that you would bless the people in this room. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in your name. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. So as I began to read that, I was like, great, man. David's got some really good guys with him. But I know um, that this is a time where David is running away from Saul and he's living in caves. And and I'm thinking, man, it's, it's pretty cool that he's got some guys that he can lean on, guys that he can depend on. And then I started to, to really kind of dig in and really kind of study this. And one of the bummer things about the Bible sometimes is that it's not really in chronological order. Because if you go back to 1 Samuel in, in, cha- in um, chapter 22, it, it talks about these mighty men also, and it, because it talks about the people who came to David in that time. And so let's take a quick look at the volunteers that David had to work with. It says this, These men were distressed. They were poor in spirit. They were in debt, right? They're depressed, right? They're pessimistic. They're complainers. They're in debt, right? They're running away to escape prison, to escape jail time for for these debts that they have incurred. They're discontented. They're troublemakers. They're grumbling. Not quite the A-team that you would hope is gonna show up to help you out in in your darkest hour of need. And if that wasn't enough, right, there were 400 of these men showed up pretty, pretty close to it to one time, but the number swelled pretty quickly to over 600. And David is living with these men in a cave. I don't know about you, but when I begin to be surrounded by people who are constantly grumbling, constantly complaining, constantly just depressed and down, I begin to go to, 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 to be down. I begin to find things to complain about. And the reason I like David is because David takes this group, this 600 men, and out of this 600 men, he pulls these three. These three men who do amazing, amazing things. But these three men at one point in their lives were either discontented, they were in debt, or they were grumblers or complainers or troublemakers. And David took them and he turned their lives around. And he didn't just do that with these three. He did it with this entire company, which is a very important thing to have happen because at this point, Saul is still the king of Israel. Saul has the army. David does not. Saul is out waging war on the Philistines, but he knows that he has lost the covering of God. He knows that he stepped outside of God's will and that eventually at some point he will be removed. And that's why he's trying to kill David. He's trying to circumvent God's will so that his family will remain on the throne. And what you find out later on is that almost the entire army of Israel is wiped out on the day that Saul and Jonathan are killed. So the country of Israel is left with almost no fighting force. 
They have a king. It's David. He's hiding in a cave. And the Philistines have still overrun the entire country. It's, it's not a good thing. But David needed this group of men. And so you have to ask yourself the question, how did David take 600 grumbling, complaining malcontents and turn them into not just a fighting force, but an elite fighting force? And so we have to start and we have to look at David. Who was David? A lot of us know that David was just a shepherd. He was a shepherd boy as he was growing up. He spent a lot of time by himself in the fields, tending his father's sheep. And in those times, now I know for me, like when I'm just sitting around not doing a whole lot, watching sheep eat grass, or whatever the equivalent of that is now, it's usually my, usually my kids playing with a train set or something, I find ways to occupy my time. And unfortunately, because I have one of these, I find a lot of stupid ways to occupy my time. There are video games and internet sites that, you know, like web pages that you can browse. Like I, I check scores and I keep track of, of hockey teams because that's my sport. Um, you know, there are, there are applications or video games on there that I can play and waste so much time. When I could be doing something else, I could be doing something a lot more constructive with my time. And David, when he had nothing to do, he spent time with the Lord. And you say, well, how do we know that? Well, there's not a lot written about David during this time. There's nothing that says, and David spent a lot of time with the Lord. You're not going to find that in there. But what you will find is that in 1 Samuel chapter 13, the prophet Samuel goes to Saul and says, you have lost the favor of the Lord, and he is going to raise someone up to take your place. And this person is a man after God's own heart. Three chapters later, he anoints David to be the king of Israel. And so we can infer by that that David is a man after God's own heart and that David spent time with the Lord. David sought the Lord in those times. He spent time in prayer. He spent time um, worshiping and praising. And in those times, God spoke to him and God poured in to him. And then God brought him through some really cool stuff. When lions or bears came after the sheep and tried to take them away, you learn this when David is talking to Saul about fighting Goliath. He says, when a lion or a bear came to take one of my father's sheep, I chased after it, I grabbed it by the beard, and I clubbed it to death. Now, I don't know about you, I have no desire to chase a lion or a bear with a stick. I want to be 300 yards away with a scoped, high-powered rifle to make sure there's no possible way this thing gets to me. I don't want to be that close. And David's talking about it like, yeah, this was a fairly regular occurrence. This was what I did day in and day out. But David was learning things from God in this time that no matter how the deck was stacked against him, God would get him through. As long as he had faith, as long as he continued to place his faith in God, God was going to get him through. And this thought popped into my head as I'm thinking about all this, that, that discipleship happens in a couple of ways. First and foremost, it's going to happen in the time that we spend with God. It's going to happen in the times that we spend praying. It's going to happen in the times that we spend digging into God's word. It is this extravagant, intimate time that we spend with the Lord. Secondly, discipleship is going to happen when we spend time with mature Christians. And I say mature Christians because 
Unfortunately, length of time as a Christian does not always necessarily equate to maturity. And I'm, I'm a perfect example of that. I have been actively pursuing God for probably 20 years now. But before that, 15 years before that, I was running amok and I was doing my own thing and living my life however I wanted to. And so if you take the grand total, that's, I mean, you could say, wow, 15 years as a Christian, like you're probably, no, not mature at all. And I have known people that have known Jesus less than a year who are some of the most devoted, wise, caring people that I've ever met because they rely on God to be those things. And so we need to be spending time with people who are going to constantly be pointing us toward God. David did this. This is how David trained his men. They lived in a cave together. They did life together. And the one thing I think the problem that we have with discipleship in the Western church is that we have taken it and we have dumbed it down to, here's a book. Get in a book study. And then when you're done with that book study, maybe get into another book study. But that's not what discipleship is. And what we see from David's example here is that it is doing life together. It's doing life first and foremost with God and then taking what God is pouring into you and doing that with other people in your life. Psalm 34 was written by David, written by the same time, because we know from 1 Samuel that he's hiding in the cave at Adullam. And it's, this psalm was written during the time that he was living in that cave. And this is what he taught his men from. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3, it says, I will praise the Lord at all time. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all those who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. This is one of the first things that he's teaching his men. And one of those first things that he's got to teach a bunch of complaining, discontented Jerk people is this. Stop complaining and start praising God. Stop complaining and start praising because this is the truth of the matter. My heart is going to gravitate. I'm sorry, my attitude is going to gravitate to where my heart is. And if I am grumbling and I am complaining and I am constantly finding a reason to be upset about my circumstances, I will never move beyond it. David had spent years living in a cave before these men had come to him. He'd spent years living outside, tending his father's sheep. Yes, things could be worse. Things could be better. But I will praise God always. And, and this wasn't just something David said one time. If you take a look at all of the different psalms that have been written by David, he praises the Lord. And yeah, there are some times where in his life, things were going so sideways that he is screaming out to God, I don't understand it. I don't get it. People are trying to kill me. I'm living in a hole in the ground. I've got nothing. But you will always see the psalms will always begin to change. There begins to be a shift in the pattern. But he says, but... I will always praise you. 
You have always taken care of me, so I will always praise your name. And he's saying to his men, stop complaining. Start praising God. Because our circumstances could be way worse than what they are. Verse four and five of Psalm 34 says, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all of my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. And what he's saying to these men in this time is that I trust God completely and you can too. It is no secret to anybody that this is the same David that went out and fought Goliath. While the armies of Israel cowered behind rocks and boulders and their tents, David stepped up and said, I refuse to let this giant stand against my Lord. I'll go fight him. I'll do it. And like we mentioned earlier, when Saul said, how can you do this? This guy has been a warrior since his youth and you are only a boy. It's when David said, I've struck down lions and I've struck down bears and this dirty Philistine is gonna be like one of them. And he goes out and we, we know the story that he goes out and with his sling, he kills this giant because he trusted God completely. He did not go out there in his own strength. He knew that one-on-one, man-to-man, strength-to-strength, he did not have what it took. But he knew that if he went out there and he allowed God to be his backing and he allowed God to be his support, that there was absolutely nothing that he could not do. And David did something that no other man in the country was willing or capable of doing. We're going to jump down to verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 34, and it says, Fear the Lord, you his godly people. Those who fear him will have all they need. Even the strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. He's teaching his, his, his soldiers, fear God, not men. Saul and the entire army of Israel is trying to kill him. He and these men that he have are still going out and they're still fighting for their country against the Philistines. David is basically fighting a war on two fronts and one of these guys is supposed to be his friend, supposed to be a friendly. But he says, fear God and not men. And there was a point when they were hiding out in the caves where Saul was pursuing him. Saul was chasing him and Saul needed to go in and uh, make a pit stop. And he happened to wander into the very same cave that David and his men were hiding in. And while Saul is taking care of business, his men are telling him, David, now's your chance. Now is your chance. If you kill Saul, all of this stops, right? We rally the army. We route the Philistines. We get our country back. We are no longer enslaved. Let's get after it. And David creeps up behind him like, like a ninja and, and he cuts off a corner of his robe and immediately is convicted by the Holy Spirit. Immediately God says, no, that's, that's, not, how, that's not how I'm gonna do this. And David moves back and his men are upset. His, his men are angry because this could have been the end of all of their troubles. 
But David understood something, and this is what he taught his men in that moment, is that, is that it is not for me to raise my hand against God's anointed. God will deal with him. God will remove him when it is time to do that. It's not my job. It's not for me to do. These guys continued to learn from David. David was not perfect. I'm sure David screwed up. There were probably moments where David was down where David was not doing well mentally or emotionally or spiritually, but as, as he began to raise these men up, these men began to love him and they began to come alongside him and they began to support him. True discipleship in our lives is going to breed a desire to serve. It's gonna breed a desire to serve others. Toward the end of 2 Samuel chapter 23, and it starts in verse 15. We read the story about David just desiring, just really wanting a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem. It's about 15 miles away from where they're staying. And he's like, man, I just, I wish I could have a drink of water from the good well. Oh, that would be so great. Here's the problem. Bethlehem had been completely overrun and was now a Philistine outpost. There was an entire garrison of Philistine soldiers that lived in this town and camped around and outside of this town where David had grown up. But he says, man, I wish I could have a drink of water from there. And you've got to imagine that living in a cave, there's not a lot of all of the amenities that we would love to have, food and water and all of these things. And something amazing happens. The three amigos, right, that we read about earlier, these three mighty men of valor heard David say this and they did something completely unthinkable. They saddled up and they made, they made tracks 15 miles straight to Bethlehem. And this was not a Navy SEAL incursion. There was nothing stealthy about what they did. They moved straight into that town fighting as they went, cutting down enemy soldiers. One of them fills a skin with water and they fight their way back out, make it all the way back to this cave and they give David this water. David spent time with them, pouring into them, teaching them, leading them, and it drove these men to do something incredible. And it's something that we don't do very often. But these men put their lives on the line for water. A lot of us, and I'm included in this, I have trouble putting my life on the line for for. for you know, it wouldn't be water, honestly. You know, I, I cannot look at you in the eyes today and say, if I had been in that cave with David and he said, man, I'd really like a drink of water from that well, I'd be like, man, that would be great. Too bad we don't have it. I cannot say with honesty that I would have looked at two other dudes and went, all right, let's go. Let's go get it. I can't say that. I wish that I could. I wish that I could. One of the problems with the Western church is that we have become a group of consumers and not contributors. Before COVID happened, the statistics of those who, who attended a church and, uh, you know, versus those who actually served in the church 
was somewhere in the, in the realm of 87% would just attend, where somewhere between 13 and 10% were the ones who served. So you, you hear this rule, the 90-10 rule, right? 90% of the people come and they attend, 10% of the people serve and make the church go round. Since COVID, that number has, has changed, and unfortunately not in a good way. Since COVID, that number has changed to somewhere in the realm of 95.5 or even 97.3. And I get it. You know, there are, there are health concerns and there are reasons to, to stay home and watch online. But some of us, and myself included, when it was time to actually go back to work and be here on a Sunday morning, I was like, man, it was really nice when I could just record a message and send it to our, our tech people and they put it up and then I got to sit and watch myself on a Sunday morning as opposed to getting up and do all the things. I got too comfortable. I got too comfortable being able to do church in my pajamas. You know, I'm sitting on the couch with a plate of bacon and eggs watching myself going, that was a good point. Ooh, good one. Really good. And we have to change that. We have to get back to, to a point where we as the church, as the body of Christ, are servants, where we are serving. Because God has given every single one of us a set of skills, and they're all different. Because we're not meant to be the same people, and we're not meant to serve in the exact same ways. But every single one of us is meant to serve. Now, something that I heard, I actually heard this in my own church a couple of weeks ago when um, our, our children's director was asking somebody if they would, you know, be able to, to, you know, come and help out, you know, one week a month, two weeks a month. And I heard this, well, I'm just not called to that. And I began to think about it, okay, and, and, and there are, listen, there are some really good reasons for not volunteering in a certain ministry, Okay? There are certain people that just cannot handle junior high kids and would probably waffle stomp one into the ground. Probably a good idea that you don't go work with junior high kids. But the nursery always needs help. There's always got to be somebody to hold babies. You know, there's always, there are so many places to serve. And I thought about this idea of calling versus serving. And we've taken this word calling and we've liked to turn it into this blanket thing that says, well, I don't have to do this because I'm not called to it. I will tell you what you are called to. You are called to go into this world and make disciples of all men. Not my words. Those are the words of Jesus. That is our calling as a Christian. As Christ followers, our calling, the one thing that we are called to do is that as we go through life, make disciples. And David has given us the recipe right here. He's given us such an amazing example of how to do that. You just do life with people. You encourage them along the way. And yes, some of these books, these discipleship books and these book studies that you can do are amazing tools, but that's not where it ends. That's not where it stops. We have to dig in. We have to do life with each other, because discipleship at its core is sacrificial. That's part of the reason that we struggle with it sometimes. It's part of the reason I struggle with it sometimes is that discipleship is asking me to sacrifice certain things. It's asking me to, to put myself last. And that is not a natural human position, which is why if I'm not spending 
intimate and extravagant time with God, I don't put myself last. I went through a season in my ministry where I was struggling to be in the word. And I was, I mean, I was, I was physically wiped out. I was emotionally wiped out. And because I was not spending time with God, I was spiritually wiped out. And I began to put the needs of my team underneath the things that I felt like I needed. And our ministry began to struggle until God slapped me in the head with the Bible one day and went, hey, what are you doing? Sort yourself out. Maybe spend a little time with me and we can begin to fix some of these problems. We can begin to redeem some of these issues. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Jesus so that we can do the good things he has planned for us so long ago. And I will tell you this, um, as a kid growing up, I never thought youth pastor. That's the thing. That is what I want to do. Now, my son, man, praise the Lord, is already saying he wants to be a children's pastor. God has put this in his heart from a very early age, and I'm excited about that, and I can't wait to see how that works out. But I never thought that I was going to be a youth pastor. And when I started dating my wife, I was uh, working as a youth pastor at the church that I had grown up in. And she came out to visit me. And on a Friday night, we did this thing called Friday Night Live. And we had our youth room open from 7 p.m. to midnight. Because I would rather have these kids there tearing holes in my walls and breaking all my stuff as opposed to being out and partying and drinking and doing drugs. And she, she was sitting there thinking, and she told me this later. She's like, there's no possible way. I can't do this. I don't like high school kids. I don't want to be a part of anything going on with high school kids. This is a hard no. But we got married and she followed me to the desert, which is how I knew she loved me. And consequently, I, I moved her out here and then moved back to the desert and she went again. So that's how I know she really loves me. But during this time that we're, that we're there, I'm working for the police department and we begin to work with the youth group in our church there and God began to change her heart. So if you're sitting here today and you're like, well, I've got these really good talents and I, I would like to use them, that's awesome. And we do need to do that. God has gifted you to work in specific places, but do not downplay the fact that God might be calling you to something outside of your comfort zone. Because it's when we're outside of our comfort zone that we really lean into God. Because I don't have what I need to do this. I need you to do it in me. I need you to be able to help me love these third graders and teach them the steps for the kids' musical. You know, I'm not a big fan of running a vacuum, but I need you to give me the strength and the grace to run a vacuum, whatever it is. There's so many different areas in our churches that we can, that we can volunteer and that we can help out with. But here's my big thing. And as we close today, this is what I want to leave you with. David picked three. He picked three men that he saw potential in and he poured into them. And you see it again in the New Testament. Jesus had 12 disciples, but he picked three. He picked three men, Peter, James, and John. And these men were the ones that he really poured into. These were the ones that he spent time with. These were the ones that along with the others he did life with. There's no possible way that David could have turned 600 men into an elite fighting force by himself. 
David took those three and he poured into them. And then he encouraged those three, go find three more. Go find three more. At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 23, they run through a list of another 30 or so names of David's mightiest warriors. All of these men, leaders in his, in his army, and all of these men were poured into either by David or by the three. And that worked itself down into the rest of this army to where after Saul was killed, we read something pretty amazing in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 38. It said, all of these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all of Israel. All of these men stood behind David because David spent time with them, because David loved on them. Jesus spent time with his disciples, but he spent real time with Peter, James, and John. And those men created a church that has spread to where we are today. And if we are going to stand behind Jesus and proclaim that he is king over all, then we have to be doing these things too. We pick three. We pick three people with potential and we pour into them. We bring them alongside of us. We allow them to work in our hearts or uh, we allow God to work in our hearts as we work with them. We allow them to minister to us when we're having a bad day and we minister to them when they're having a bad day. And if we do that, we're gonna see something incredible happen. We are going to see an explosion. We're going to see a revival, the likes of which this earth has never seen before because we're going to begin to, to, to replicate and to multiply but it requires us being willing. It requires us being willing to get up, to go, to sacrifice, to put others' needs ahead of our own, which when it comes down to it, that's exactly what Jesus did. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for David. I thank you that, that David was not perfect, but I thank you that he did Seek your face. I thank you that he looked to you throughout his life and that he has given us a roadmap of discipleship that we can use to tell people about how amazing you are. Fathers, we leave this place today. I pray that you would just cement that in our heart. Lord, that we would leave here, that we would pick three and that we would pour into those three and that we would encourage those three to find three more. That as we do that, Lord, as, as churches across this country begin to do that, as churches across this world continue to do that, we are going to see your spirit move in a way that we never have before. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised to never leave us. We thank you that you have promised to give us everything that we need to complete this mission. Go before us the rest of this day, I pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.